Good afternoon, everybody. Yes, uh, I hope you've enjoyed your new moon. We've had some good weather the last couple of days. Break from the cold. I guess it's kind of cloudy today, but when I wrote this sermon, it was good weather the last couple of days. <laughs> so uh, it's been a minute since I've taught, and so I hope you guys are excited to be back in Isaiah chapter 53. Those who have been going along and studying along with me, uh, thank you. I'm glad that you're glad that you're doing that since the last time I taught um, there's been some good teachings that have been brought forth in in this congregation brother Jerry's taught some good messages Matthew's taught some good and brother Sandy's taught some good messages so there's been a wealth of knowledge shared from all different points of views and they've covered a just a array of biblical information and so um I'm so thankful that there are several men in this congregation that are capable of teaching the scriptures, but not only that they're capable of teaching the scriptures, they're also willing to uh, and committed, I guess, for the welfare of this small assembly here, and so for that I'm thankful. We sit in this congregation Sabbath after Sabbath, new moon after new moon, and we listen to all kinds of knowledge and wisdom that comes forth from this pulpit and just from interaction and conversation with other people. and. Sometimes I think that we forget just how fortunate we are That's right. that, uh, that we're, we're surrounded with That's people right. with knowledge. And uh, it's an incredible gift that uh, Yahweh has bestowed upon us. He's given us a blessing. and So um, I, I'm super thankful for that. Can you imagine sitting in the presence of Moses and speaking to Moses? Can you imagine? I can't imagine what that would be like. Or better yet, how about speaking to the prophet like unto Moses, sitting before the Messiah and let him speak to you? I can't imagine can't imagine what that would be like. The only, the only begotten son of Yahweh and the wisdom that would proceed out of his mouth or even just one of the prophets in general just to talk to a man of, a man of Elohim. As we read through any of the prophets in the Bible, I'm blown away by the words and the wisdom of their insight and their instructions of Yahweh. Because I'm so blown away, I can't for the life of me understand how in the world that the Israelite people would be so reluctant to listen to them. But it seems to be that that's the case over and over and over again throughout all the prophets. Not only did they reject the prophets' instructions and warnings, they also refused the future telling of the times of the prophets. And as a matter of fact, some were even killed for their loyalty to Yahweh to deliver his words. I'm talking about the prophets. Well, the prophecy in Isaiah that we've been studying for some time now, it's, uh, it's no different from the words of the rest of the prophets it has been rejected throughout time and misapplied by the ancients in an effort to bypass the reality of it now, brothers and sisters that's a shame that we can't take the word of Yahweh and just believe it if it steps on our toes we ought to have sore feet and that's okay it's okay that that happens I'd rather be corrected by Yahweh so that I might repent of my sins instead of rejecting his word and being lost forever But in saying all that, there's some people that have rejected this section of prophecy for centuries because they've assumed that the prophecy was about them, meaning that they were the suffering servant. If it wasn't about them, then they kind of just push it to the side. A lot of of Jewish synagogues will never bring this portion of Scripture up. They won't teach it at all. And while this prophecy is about them, it's not that they are the servant or that they would be the servant but rather they would be the ones that would confess that Yeshua is the suffering servant the only son of Yahweh the people are in, that are in view here are the, are the Jews that 
that crucified Yeshua or had him crucified. I guess he was done by the hands of the Roman, but by the Jewish leaders of the time. Remember, this chapter looks forward to the crucifixion of Christ, but it also looks backward from the future conversion of Israel someday when they realized that the one that they crucified was the only begotten son of Yahweh. Now, I covered all that in the first two sermons as I went through the end of chapter 52 and the first part of chapter 53, but I thought it might be beneficial to remind you of it as we start to unwrap the text for today. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 53 again, and we'll, we'll deal with verses 7 through 9. But let's go ahead and read this entire chapter again just for the sake of context and in order to recount the prophecy. I'll start in Isaiah 52 and verse 13. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were appalled at you, his appearance was so disfigured that he did not look like a man, and his form did not resemble a human being. So he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him, for they will see what had not been told them, and they will understand what they had not heard. Who has believed what we have heard? And who has the arm of Yahweh been revealed to? He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or splendor that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like one people turned away from. He was despised, and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses, and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by Elohim, and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our transgressions, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way, and Yahweh has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before her shears, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment. And who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man at his death, although he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. Yet Yahweh was pleased to crush him and he made him sick. When you make him a restitution offering, he will see his seed, he will prolong his days, and the will of Yahweh will succeed in his hand. He will see it out of his anguish, and he will be satisfied with his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many, and he will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mightiest spoil, because he submitted himself to death and was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. So our focus here today is on verses 7 through 9. These three verses are specifically about the crucifixion event of our Messiah. Verse 7 looks at his trial. Verse 8 looks at his death. And verse 9 looks at his burial. So verse 7 says, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Now, while we know the prophecy is about Christ, we also know that it's not about Christ in some ways. Okay. Remember that this prophecy is yet future about a confession that the Jews will make at some time to come in the future. And in the statement here, they are talking about the suffering that their Messiah went through for the sake of their sins. 
they realize by now in their confession in their confession exactly who he is. They are not in the dark anymore, hence the reason for the confession. They've seen the light, so to speak. They have come to know exactly who Yeshua was. And so in verse six they state, We all went away like sheep. We all have turned to our own way, and Yahweh has punished him, Yeshua, for the iniquity of us all. Wow, what a reality. Verse 7, they'll continue with this. He was oppressed and afflicted. I want you to turn your attention to the word afflicted there. The word oppressed means exactly that. It means that he was oppressed in many ways, but uh, mostly by the treatment that was given to him by the Romans under the approval of the Jews. We know what kind of treatment was placed upon him. We've discussed it in the previous chapter, previously in this chapter, but also we've read the end of this book we know what he went through. We know that he was crucified. We know that his trial wasn't fair. We know that we, he did all, they did all kind of nasty things to Yeshua, and so we know that about him. So this was his oppression. But let's look at the word afflicted. The word afflicted could just be another way of saying oppressed. We could just use it, and uh, that's a thought, I guess. That's a way it could be used, but I don't think that's the intention of the writer here. Because the verb used here can be passive, which just means that the action of the verb happens to the object, not that the object does the action. Because it's passive, we can understand a little we can understand it a little differently, and that it could mean that he allowed himself to be afflicted. In other words, he humbled himself and allowed himself to be afflicted. So it might be appropriate to translate this verse like this He was oppressed, though he humbled himself. It actually sounds a lot like Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 11. If you've got your Bibles, will you turn with, it, turn with me real quick and let's read that. I think this is where Paul gathers his thoughts from Isaiah 53. Philippians chapter 2, we start in verse 5. It says, Make your own attitude that of Christ, Yeshua, who existed in the form of Elohim, did not consider equality with Elohim, has something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he had come as a man in his external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, the Almighty also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that so at the name of Yeshua every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Yeshua the Messiah is Lord to the glory of the Almighty, the Father. I think this is a direct reflection of Isaiah 53, verse 7. In other words, because Yeshua didn't consider equality with Yahweh something to be grasped, he suffered unjustly. If we understood this verse in, the, in this manner, it sheds a whole new light on the rest of verse 7. And also in verse 8. Listen to the whole verse this way. He was oppressed, though he humbled himself. Yet he did not open his mouth, like a lamb led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. I think the whole point of verse 7 is that Yeshua was silent in his defense, just like a lamb is silent. The point is made at the beginning of the verse that he was oppressed, which would naturally give him a reason to cry out. Okay? 
However, instead of standing his ground and giving a defense for himself, he chose the way of silence and continued on to be destroyed. One more point to make is that sheep are not afflicted in the sense of harm before they're slaughtered. Nobody beats a sheep up and then goes and takes its life in order to eat it. So the focus on the verse is not on the torment of Yeshua right here, but rather his willingness to die in humility and silence. His willingness to humble himself in order to be afflicted and to do so quietly like a lamb led to the slaughter. He had not opened his mouth. He gave no rebuttal or defense for the accusation brought against him. He was simply silent. Then Isaiah reiterates this at the end of verse 7 and he says the exact same thing in a different way. He says, like a lamb led to the slaughter and a sheep silent before his shears, he did not open his mouth. Once again, the point here is about the silence. Yeshua could have called down a legion of angels and loosed himself from their grasp, but he didn't. He had the opportunity to do that. In Matthew chapter 4, the devil tempts him with that. He says, is it not written? Can you not do these things? Could he not have done that? Mm -hmm. Sure, I think that he could. Instead, he went to his death willingly. With no rebuttal, he didn't even open his mouth. How would we react if, um, if someone charged us with something that we didn't do? I think we could all say that we would kick and scream in some kind of defense for ourselves, right? I think that we would all do that. I know everybody in here would. I know all of y'all. You would all kick and scream. I know I would. Guilty or not, we would cry out. We would cry out. Nobody just sucks it up and remains silent when they're being accused of something, much less actually being afflicted. But he did. There's another proof that the prophecy can't be calling the Jewish nation. This is another proof that the, the prophecy can't be calling the Jewish nation the suffering servant. No nation alive has ever suffered unjustly and remained silent about it. It just doesn't happen. There would be public outcries of all sorts all over the place. No, this is not the nation of Israel. This is our Messiah that we're talking about right here. He remained silent, did not open his mouth in the face of his oppression. He not only accepted the unrighteous judgment and his affliction, he did it without argument, without even opening his mouth in a sense of protest. Let's look at verse 8, or at least the first part of verse 8. It says that he was taken away because of oppression and judgment, and who considered his fate? Taken away because of oppression. What does that mean? It means because of the ridiculous claims that were brought against him, that he broke the Sabbath, that he made himself out to be Yahweh, that he was a blasphemer, etc., he was taken away for that. That was the oppression. Literally, after his trial, he was carried away to the torture stake. The NET Bible records it like this. It says that he was led away after an unjust trial. That's the way it reads. I like that. I think it sounds good. I think it fits. The oppression is what came to him in injustice, his arrest, his confinement. The judgment is the verdict of his oppression. He was taken away. It means exactly what it sounds like. He was taken from the trial to his execution. Now that covers the oppression and the judgment part of verse 8, but what about the part where it says, and who considered his fate? This is probably the strongest point of all Isaiah to me, or the one that hits home the most. The verse might as well say he was oppressed, judged, tried, sentenced, and murdered, and who cared? And who cared? Nobody considered his fate, and nobody cared. 
Even the disciples hid when they were crucified. Him, he, they weren't around. They weren't around. There's some extra biblical um, stuff that you can read in the mission if you want to find out some more things about that. I didn't include it in my sermon, but um, I'd be glad to share it with anybody in here um, after the service, things like that, if you want to know exactly what happened to all the disciples. But we know what happened to Peter. You remember what happened to Peter when they questioned Peter? They said, you know, he, they accused him of being with the Galilean, and he said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. That was the first time. And then again he was accused, and he said, I don't know the man. And then the third time that he was accused, they approached him, and he even denied it with an oath and cursing. That's what the Bible says. He cursed and denied it with an oath, and he says, I don't know the man. To make his point that he didn't know Yeshua, the one that was being crucified. He didn't want to be caught with him. He didn't want to be seen with him. It was fine up until the crucifixion, but when the Romans got hot, it was time to bail out. And he didn't want to have anything to do with him. The disciples were living out the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 13 and verse 7. We know the prophecy. The strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. That's exactly what happened. The disciples were long gone. So who considered his fate? Nobody. But what's so crazy about this whole prophecy is that 700 years prior to this Execution. Isaiah knows exactly what's going to happen. Brothers and sisters, if that's not, if that doesn't solidify the Bible, I don't know what does. 700 years prior to this taking place, Isaiah says they're all going to leave. Zechariah says they're going to strike the shepherd and the sheep's going to scatter. Long time before it ever takes place. But who cared about him? Who considered his fate? Where were the Pharisees and the Sadducees? They were so pious in the law. They didn't care. Where was anyone who protected the innocence of people to not take a bribe for the innocent? Where were they at? Yahweh talks about that throughout the whole Bible. It's mentioned as much as widows and orphans are mentioned. It's mentioned as much or more than the Sabbath day. Talking about not taking a bribe. What is even more astonishing, I learned this week, I learned this study in this this week. Uh, I thought it was interesting. In the Mishnah, <clears throat> there was an edict that demanded that there be a 40-day time period given from the time of the verdict to the time of the execution for someone to speak in favor of the accused to prove their innocence. 40 days in the Mishnah. <clears throat> and this makes all the sense in the world. It's an excellent idea. If somebody gets the death sentence, somebody goes out for 40 days, and seeks some kind of approval that they could be, you know, acquitted of their crime if they're innocent. Makes great sense. That's not what happened to the Messiah. The trial was held at night. They picked him up in the Garden of Gethsemane. They held the trial that night. And why was he crucified the next day? He didn't get 40 days. No, because they didn't want anybody to speak for him. He wasn't guilty. They didn't want anybody to say that he wasn't guilty. Where were his 40 days? Well, this question was asked in early Christian history, and it appears that there's an answer given by the Sanhedrin in Folio 43 in the Talmud. You can look that up. It says that this, and I quote, There is a tradition on the eve of the Sabbath and the Passover that they hung Yeshua. And the herald went forth before him 40 days, crying, 
Yeshua goes to be executed because he has practiced sorcery and seduced Israel and estranged them from Yahweh. Let anyone who can bring forth any justifying plea for him come and give information concerning it. But no justifying plea was found for him, and so he was hung on the eve of the Sabbath and the Passover. That's in the Talmud, and it's authorized by the Sanhedrin just to cover their tracks. It's a lie, ladies and gentlemen. It's a lie. The Bible does not teach that. As a matter of fact, one rabbi, Allah, said about Yeshua, he kind of contradicts the Sanhedrin. He says, but do you think that he belonged to these for whom a justifying plea is to be sought? In other words, he was saying Yeshua doesn't even look, he doesn't even belong to the type of people who are credible to seek justice for. How dare anybody step up for him? The 40 days was a real thing. Undoubtedly, undoubtedly they did this in Jewish culture. They, they set for 40 days for any time that was somebody was given the death penalty. You could, people, a herald would go out and people would go out and, and request somebody to stand in their defense. In John chapter 18, the Messiah kind of leans towards this. Um, Acts chapter 26, Paul does the same thing when he's tried before Agrippa. You can, uh, you can go and look those up and just see if you can make the connections. If anybody wants any extra biblical uh, thought on that, I'd give you some of that after the, after the sermon. So, anyway, however, to say the least, nobody cared. Nobody cared that he was going to be murdered. And that's exactly what his fate was in, in verse 8. Execution, murder by the hands of the Romans, orchestrated by the heads and the minds of the Jewish leaders. This is probably what the rest of verse 8 means. Let's look at that. It says, For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck down because of my people's rebellion. See, Pilate orders his execution, and not only does he order the execu his execution, he orders it in the way that a slave would be executed. The terms used here are cut off. Okay, That means destroyed completely, removed altogether. The land of the living is just a Hebrew idiom, and it, it's used for the general place where people lived as opposed to the underworld realm of those who have already passed. Okay, It's just a Hebrew idiom. We'll talk more about how it was a death of a slave or a rebel in just a minute when we get to verse 9. But the final part of verse 8 is a bit tricky. It reads like this. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. This will get a little bit technical here, so... Do your best to follow along. When I first looked at this, I thought maybe Isaiah was speaking of his people here when it says that he was struck for my people rebellion, my people's rebellion. I thought, well, maybe Isaiah's saying these are my people. But the more I studied it, I thought, well, maybe this is Yahweh speaking here and uh, saying that Yeshua was struck for the rebellion of his people. Then after a while, I realized that I didn't have a clue and so I sought for some help. <laughs> I sought for some help. Without getting too technical in the Hebrew, what I came up with, and I'm not getting too technical, not because I don't want to portray the information, because I don't understand it that well. So, so um, anyway, without getting so technical, what I came up with was this. Most scholars here read this from the Qumran scrolls. scrolls. <clears throat> and they say the group in view here is identified as the servants people. So the verse may be more accurately translated, he was struck because of his own people's rebellion, which makes sense and it fits no matter how you understand it there. 
I know this is a little technical, but I, I was afraid not to point it out. There's a chance that I probably will never speak on this text again in my life. Okay, I may never teach on Isaiah 53 as long as I live again. And I don't want to do it in injustice by leaving something out if I can help it as long as time allows. And so I think it's best to be understood that he was being struck because of his own people's rebellion. <clears throat> Let's move on to verse 9. It says that they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man at his death, although he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. Let's start with they made his grave with the wicked. Why did they do that? Why did they make his grave with the wicked? And what does that mean coming from Isaiah some 700 years before this incident takes place? Well, Yeshua was hung between two criminals, right? We all know that. Remember the three crosses on the hill, right? Matthew 27, 38, Luke 23, 33, they both record that in the Synoptic Gospels. We can read about it. They both say the same thing. They said that he was crucified with two criminals, one on the left and one on the right. Isaiah said they were wicked men, criminals, wicked men. That all fits. We don't have a problem there. Now, if you died a death of a criminal back then, you would be treated in a degrading way and not have a proper burial. That was common. We can see examples of that in Jeremiah chapter 25 and verse 33. Jeremiah 25, 33 says, Those slain on that day will be spread from one end of the earth to the other. They will not be mourned, gathered, nor buried. They will be like manure on the surface of the ground. The ultimate disdain would be to leave a person's body or your body for an animal to eat or for your body to disintegrate over time or to be thrown into a fire without burying it. Okay? So Yeshua was killed between two criminals. And the normal procedure would be to leave his body hanging up there on a tree until he died of asphyxiation. That's what happened. They died because they couldn't breathe. Because the weight of their body pulling on their arms and things like that, it collapsed their lungs and they died. After that, they would leave them there until the, their faces were plucked out by birds and their body become the host of all the creatures of the air. Well, as people would pass by, this would be a warning sign. A warning sign to all who've seen them not to mess with Rome. Don't break Roman law. And for that matter, don't mess with Rome in any manner. Now, even though it was a very effective way of doing things, it probably stopped a lot of crime, I can imagine. It's not sanctioned by Yahweh, and for that reason, it's wrong. But that's what, that's what the plan was for them. That's what the plan was for the two criminals and also the Son of the Almighty was to leave him there to leave him there. They would eventually take their bodies down and they would throw them into the dump. All right. Well, the city dump of Jerusalem was in the Valley of Hinnom. Mm -hmm. It still exists today. It's not a dump anymore, but the Valley of Hinnom still exists today and it's, it's still on the south side of Jerusalem. Anyway, it was a dump that burned with fire both day and night a place where the trash and the corpses were consumed by fire. And whatever wasn't consumed by fire would lay up against the edges of this valley. And along the edges of this valley, maggots and things would, would be on the edges of the valley, and they would, they would consume whatever the fire didn't burn up. All right? They would eat it. It was a pretty nasty place, to say the least. It was even a place where the apostate Jews and followers of Baal and other Canaanite gods burned their children to the god Moloch. The king Ahaz, he did that in Second Chronicles chapter 8, 28. You can go read about it. 
This is the same place that Isaiah is talking about in Isaiah chapter 66 and verse 24 when he says that the maggot never die and the fire never goes out or the worm, die, the worm dieth not and the fire goes not extinguished. Jerusalem better hope the EPA don't find out about this place because I'm pretty sure they would shut it down and wouldn't be able to burn trash anymore. But I think that may be what happened. Anyhow, it was a horrible place. Yeshua compares this place to hell in Mark chapter 9, verse 43. So in Isaiah's eyes, Yeshua would die and his grave would be with the wicked. There's two men that are, that are beside him. He's, Isaiah's, Isaiah's saying he's going to die with these two wicked men and they're going to get, they're going to get wicked men burials. All right, But then I'm not sure if there was a little bit of buffering or something that took place in Isaiah's vision there. But all of a sudden he says that there's going to be a rich man at his death. Right? I don't know what happened. Isaiah goes from having Yeshua thrown into the valley of Hinnom with the wicked men to having a rich man at his death. Let's look at the next line in Isaiah 53 and verse 9. It says, They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man at his death. So what just happened? Does anybody know who the rich man was? Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph of Arimathea was his name. So, Psalm 16 says that Yahweh would not allow His Holy One to see decay. So Yahweh has a rich man attend the crucifixion of Christ. Folks, this is where Yahweh says, enough is enough. Enough is enough. My servant was perfect, and I allowed all of this nonsense to take place that he might save the sons of mine. But that's far as it's going. It'll stop here. I made a promise to David that I would not let his body see decay, and so it ends right here. It'll stop. Now, Joseph was one of Yeshua's disciples. He was from Arimathea. We don't hear a whole lot about him in the Bible. We just he just kind of comes in there at the end a little bit, maybe a couple verses about him. And after the death of Yeshua, he went to Pilate, and he requested Yeshua's body be given to him. He took him down, he wrapped him in a linen cloth, and he buried him in a tomb that he had hand-hewn for himself. Then he rolls the stone in front of the tomb, and the rest is history. I guess this is all history, but you know what I mean. Listen, folks, again, the most... Amazing part of all this is that Isaiah sees this in perfect detail some 700 years prior to the event, the event ever taking place. And when I say event, I'm talking about Yeshua's crucifixion. But remember that the prophecy is not so much about his crucifixion as it is about the confession of the people who that will, the p- people who crucified will make. Okay. So if Isaiah was so perfect in the details of his crucifixion. Don't you think that he has the confession right as well? That's incredible to me. Back to verse 9, it says, this is the last part of verse 9, it says, Although he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully, Yeshua was perfect, and that's why he was preserved. That's why his body was preserved. He had done no wrong, he had not spoken deceitfully, yet he died a criminal's death. But Yahweh allowed him to be properly buried by a rich man in order to fulfill a prophecy. The prophecy of Isaiah 53. The prophecy of Psalms chapter 16. See, the phrase, done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully, is interchangeable. Yeshua was both sinless inside and outside. Out of the abundance, the mouth speaks. Okay, the heart's what makes the outside wicked. 
And Yeshua was neither defiled on the inside or the outside. And because of this, his father preserved his body so that in three days that he might resurrect it out of the grave. Yeshua was perfect, and that's why he was preserved. And my friends, because he was perfect is exactly why we will be preserved as well. His humiliation was over. He was resurrected, and because of, because of that, we have hope. See, in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 20, Yahweh demonstrated his power in the Messiah by raising him from the dead and seating him at, the right, at his right hand in the heavens. And folks, that all started with the preservation of his body by Joseph of Arimathea. See, Yahweh doesn't just ordain the end, but he orchestrates all the means to that end. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that wonderful? These three verses are an amazing picture and detail of the crucifixion of our Lord. The idea of Yeshua's voluntary, voluntarily giving up his life. He was, opp- was oppressed and afflicted, but he willingly and obediently submitted in silence like a lamb led to the slaughter. And no one bothered to consider his fate. Nobody. Because of his own own people own people's rebellion, he was cut off from the land of the living. He was killed like a criminal, and all of this was to the purpose of Almighty Yahweh. And it was Yahweh's will and pleasure, as verse ten says, to crush him. We will get to that the next time I teach. There's definitely some linguistic stuff going on there. But again, this is an amazing picture for our silent suffering servant. Our Messiah who fully submits to the will of Yahweh. In closing, let me ask you something. I mentioned Peter and Joseph today in my sermon. Joseph of Arimathea. Peter, who the Catholic Church would call the rock. Right? One denied Yeshua when the going got tough, but the other went and asked for his body from Pilate. Now, I believe both will be in the kingdom, and I believe that both of those men are far greater men than I'll ever be. Okay? But if you had to choose today, which side would you want to be on? Are you willing to chance your life and serve Yahweh? Are you willing to risk it all and not count the cost? I'm sure it was a fearful thing for Joseph to go ask Pilate for Yeshua's body. But he's the only one that stepped up for him. However, he did it all the same. So where do you stand today? Are you willing to give it all up for the one that gave it all up for you? Why don't you ponder that until the next time we get into Isaiah 53.